0: I'm going to dock Jeremy's pay because I had to sing. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I like singing. But it makes it kind of hard on the voice. I'm going to do something a little different this morning. I've never done this before when we finished a book. I want to review it. So we're going to kind of walk through all six chapters, not quite as detailed as I did when I went through it the first time. But I want to point out some things because we, we went through this book for the church And that's why we're going to do that. So I'm not going to read the whole book. Um, I'd like to, but uh, that would be a little bit time prohibitive. But 1 Timothy, let me remind you, is a letter from the Apostle Paul to Pastor Timothy at the Ephesus or Ephesian church. And Paul writes this for the church's benefit, as well as Timothy's education and edification. So he's writing this to a church. And God speaks these words, okay? So don't, don't think that because it's a letter from Paul, it has less effect. It is God's word. God spoke this. And, and he speaks it to us today for our own understanding and application as a church. The church of Jesus Christ must apply these instructions personally and corporately. And that's what we're gonna kind of go back over a little bit. We wanna be an effective church and those are the requirements that God has placed there. So let me ask you a question to kind of kick this off. What is the church's greatest need right now? What is, what is our church right here, First Baptist Church of Altamont, Illinois? What do we need? What do we need for the future? Do we need more people? Do we need youth? Do we need more events? Do we need more programs? What do we need? <laughs> Actually, in all of Scripture, in all of Scripture, you will never see an emphasis On numbers, on programs, or on events, you will never see that in Scripture. God did not tell His church to measure their effectiveness by how many people showed up. Sure, we got an account of three thousand getting saved, but that was quite the event. Okay, I, I wish I could replicate that, but that's not what God's called us to do. See, you won't hear praise in the Bible for churches with more people, more youth, more events, or more programs. Zilch, it's not there. None of the churches are praised because they have a big number. Sometimes they're praised for having pride in their numbers and their position, but not they're not praised for numbers. The church is called to be faithful. That's what we're called to do. Whether we're 30 or 30,000, we're called to be faithful in what we believe and what we proclaim. We are to be doers of the word. Doers of the word, James tells us. We need to be mature believers. That's that's what we're called to do. That's the faithfulness that we're called as, as, as a church to do. Every church's greatest need is to follow the Savior. That's all they need to do, follow the Savior as the way, the truth, and the life. All the way to the end. That's one of the things that I think we saw in this is that people just couldn't keep on track. In the book of Timothy, Paul is constantly... Warning Timothy about the wolves who looked like they believed but didn't. We need to keep our faithfulness all the way to the end. And God gives us plenty of instruction in here on how to do that in this book. So I want to review it with you. First of all, the first point is that love is the best weapon of the church, the best weapon of faith. I want to look at verse 15 of chapter 1. I'm going to read that to you. This saying is trustworthy. And deserving of full acceptance, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's, that's the truth. That's the truth. And he says, I am the worst of sinners, but Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus says this many times. This is not, sh- should not be a new revelation to anybody, but that is the premise of everything we do. That is the main focus of why we do anything we do. The Son of Man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom. And Paul's making sure that the Timothy and the church know this and understand this as a foundation of all ministry. So in chapter one in verses three through 11, God reminds and reinforces the manner by which Christ must be taught and love is the key. Love is the key. Verse five of chapter one says this. Now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Love is the key. Love is the key. And in verses 12 through 17 of chapter 1, Paul gives a personal testimony. I mean, it's a great testimony of what the grace of God did for him in Christ Jesus. If you look down, if you've got your Bibles open to verses 13 and 14. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man, but I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Jesus. That's a wonderful testimony of the fact that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. That's the only reason he came, to save sinners. Paul was saved, Paul was changed, and he was employed by God, and he praises Jesus for this. And in verses 18 through 20 of chapter 1, Paul commands Timothy to fight the good fight. Boy, we're gonna, we saw that so many times in the book of Timothy. Fight the good fight, the good fight of faith. And he will charge him so many times to do this. If you look at at verses 18, the second half of verse 18, the first half of verse 9, he says, by recalling them, you may fight the good fight, having faith and a good conscience. He highlights the dangerous results later in these verses that happen when one does not keep the faith. They wander away. They wander away from Christ. So in a, in a bit of application of this chapter, chapter one, love is the major difference between our faith and anybody other religions in the world. Love is the difference in our faith, our doctrines, our truth, and, and, in, and in God than all other religions. Most other religions never talk about a God-loving people. Never. Never talk about that. Muhammad did not love Allah. He just wrote a book and claimed, claimed to exploit the idea of God for the rest of the world. He he loved himself, and that's why he created Islam. Joseph Smith, founder of the Mormon Church, he didn't love God. He loved his own self. He wanted to get fame and fortune. You will see all the other religions are born out of some sort of self-love, some sort of selfish purpose, but not Christianity, not Christianity. It is completely, it turns everything upside down. It is born out of love. It is, the, it is the major difference. Jesus came in the world to save sinners because God Almighty loved them. That's why he came, because God, his Father, loved them. And when people know that we love them because of what Jesus has done for us, God gets glorified, and they experience true love, real love. How much does God love us? Well, you see Paul's testimony here. I mean, Paul was a terrible guy. He was persecuting the church. He was killing people and imprisoning people because they claimed to follow Jesus. But God saved him. There's a a but God in in that passage about his testimony. And we all have that but God showed up in our lives. We all have that in our testimony. I was this but God. I was that but God. God showed up. That's your testimony. That's my testimony and God tells us that fighting the good fight of faith means casting out that same lifeline that you've got a hold of to everybody else, to anybody else that will listen. We need to be fishing for humans and souls because Jesus came to save sinners. Remember, there's only two things that last forever, only two that last forever, the word of God and the souls of humanity. And that's what we need to be fighting for. That's the fight of faith that Jesus is talking about here. So we need to love God and love others. That's how a church matures. That's how a church becomes effective. And love is the best tool we have in our box. In our toolbox, love is the answer to all of our problems. And not the world's definition of that wishy-washy, I like pizza, I love pizza love. It's a deeper love than that. It's a love commits your life for someone else's. And then the second point in this book is that prayer leads us in submission to this mission. Chapter 2 verses 5 and 6. Let me read those for you. This is a true another truth that ties right back to verse chapter 1 verse 15. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. God and Christ in concert sent, came and, and set up the need, the, the means to save the souls of humanity. In this chapter, verses, chapter, verses one through three and verse eight, it, it calls us to, uh, to prayer. To the end of promoting it, proclaiming it, and and applying the gospel, we need to pray. Pray corporately. That's together. I want you to see that in there. Pray corporately. Pray specifically. Pray beyond ourselves. And I'm not talking just health issues. I'm talking spiritual issues. Pray with holy hands lifted, as he says. Pray without feuding with one another. Prayer is important. And then verses 9 through 15, he gives some specific instructions on women in the church. And I know some of them probably are remembering every word I said about that. And, and uh, it's good, though. He calls them to be poised. He calls them to be proper. And he calls them to be submissive to church leadership. Verse 10 of chapter 2. But with good works, as is proper for women who profess to worship God. That's, that's the qualifier, which we're all called to do that. He bases these words on the creation of order and, and the deception that went on. that's kind of how he bases those rules and so remembering that God is one, this is kind of our application of this chapter. God is one, He is the one. He is not any other God. He is the God. Regardless of what Oprah Winfrey says, regardless of anybody else, there is only one God and he is it. And you and I get the, the privilege of being worshiping him and serving him and he sent one mediator one mediator not a bunch of mediators one the man jesus christ who came in human flesh who bore our sin on the cross jesus god the son died for us to satisfy the righteous justice of god he took all the wrath of god that day on that cross See, there is no other man made God that offers that to the world. This is why our religion, our religion, our our life is so different from the world's life and the religion's life. We offer love. We don't necessarily affirm their sin, but we love them despite it. The church is those who have accepted Jesus' sacrifice by faith. That's what the church is. It's not this building. It's not even an organization on paper. It's a group of people that gather and say, I believe in Jesus Christ. I trust him with my heart, soul, and mind for the forgiveness of my sin. The question I ask is, are you one of those that could be part of this church? Are you one who is of the church universal in Jesus Christ? Now, many of us that are believers in Christ, we want to see God move. We want to see him move. We want to see the gospel save. We want the church to thrive. You know what we forget? We've got to pray for that. It's clear right here in this, we fail to pray. Sincere, committed prayer. Prayer from a right heart. Prayer that disregards time, stop looking at your watch, and distractions. Turn your phone off. That's my biggest distraction when I'm trying to pray. See, one of the first things God tells Timothy in this chapter that he needs for his struggling church is for them to pray. Any church that needs revitalizing, any church that needs to get back on track, prayer is the starting point and the staying point. It's not just do it once and hope it works. And I echo that with with God. Prayer changes things. We all believe that. We've all seen that, okay? Most of us have been affected by the prayers of someone else. But the question we ask ourselves is how much change do we want? How much revitalization? How much maturity do we want? And it all depends on how much we ask for it, how much we pray for it. If you want lots, you've got to pray lots and lots and lots. Now, the women in the church issue, God gives some guiding principles there. I want you to understand these three things about that. First, motives. Motives are questioned when your, when your dress and your appearance become your God. That's one of the points that Paul makes. Second, submission to the original plan of God must take precedent. It applies to both genders. That's God, Paul goes back to the creation story to, to establish that. And the third thing you need to understand about the, the role of women is that there's no worth assigned to your role. You're not worth less because, to God than you are if you're a man. There's no worth there. There's no value assigned to that. Be content with who God made you and where God put you. True for all of us. And when the church chooses to follow God's rules for men and women, the church will mature. The church will mature. The next point is that God's structure in the church glorifies Christ. We're in chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. He said, and this is kind of the center point of the whole book, a whole letter. I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon, but if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the Church of the Living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. And most certainly, the mystery of godliness is great because he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's your Jesus if you trust him. That's who you have put your life on. Paul tells Timothy exactly why he is writing this letter, and the Savior is meant to be lifted up because of this. He wants them to know how to conduct themselves in the church so that Jesus Christ is lifted up. That's the whole point. Verses 1 through 13 13 guide churches on the character of leaders, proper behavior, how to select them, how to lead the church. And let me remind you, these words are not just suggestions. These are commands. This is what God intends for his church to do. The will of God for his church. So many times we say, well, I wonder what God's will is. I'm telling you, it's right here in your Bible. So God's plan for the church has always been these two offices, elder and deacon. That's that's been his plan. And he calls for a plurality of them, more than one. And and I would say more than two, just to make it a little more uh, evenly distributed. But since creation... Here's why. Since creation, God has called godly men to lead his people. It's, it's always been that. He has called men, not man, to lead his people. Moses distributed his authority. He had distributed his spirit so that he could have some help because God's intended that. He never wants any of us to be long, lone ranger in this. And he, God intended this as a lasting statute. So we must submit to it. And watch God glorify Christ through it. See, Christ, the good shepherd, we know that from John 10, the Christ, the chief shepherd, he cares for his flocks by using godly men to teach, guard, guide, protect, and love the sheep. Now that's a lot that God has called us to do. To teach, guard, guide, protect, and love the sheep. And when we do this we manifest the mystery of godliness that's in Christ Jesus in his death his burial his resurrection and his ascension and the church matures when we understand this Number 4 which is on the back of your outline if you need don't know where I'm going truth is the foundation of the church the truth okay not a truth <laughs> the truth is the foundation of the church Look at uh, chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. But have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness, for the training of the body has limited benefit. But godliness is beneficial in every way, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This captures God's great concern for the church. The way to avoid the pitfalls and lies is to pursue godliness. If you're spending your time drawing closer, working on your, your, your walk with Christ every day, you're spending, you don't have time to be distracted by the world's newest and latest fad. Be like Jesus. That's what scripture teaches us. And give God what he deserves. Give him a place in your life. This whole attitude will give you purpose in life. People want to know what my purpose is in life. It is to serve God faithfully, obey him faithfully. As a Christian, we already have our purpose, so let's get on with it. In verses one through six, God defines the who, the what, the how, and the why that these heretical wolves have penetrated the church. Verse six kind of sums it up a little bit. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished by the words of the, of the faith, and the good teaching that you have followed. That's why we have to stay close to our Bible. We do. We have to keep it close to us because the world is is longing to distract us. I read stuff every week that's trying to attack the Bible in some aspect, whether it's the beginning of the book about creation or whether it's the end of the book because Jesus hasn't come back. They're looking for any way they can to discredit this book. But it is the truth, and they, they will one day have to live with that fact. And in verses 10 through 16, God reminds Timothy of his labor for the gospel, which, which reiterates, basically reiterates Timothy's call and gifting. Look at verse, uh, verse 14. Don't neglect the gift that is in you. It was given to you through prophecy and the laying on of hands by the council of elders. And he, he would say the same thing to each and every one of us. Don't neglect the gift that God has given you to serve his church. There's spiritual gifts. We all get one when we get saved. We can, I can help you begin to try to discover that. But don't neglect it. Let God show it to you. See, God stresses here the scriptural tenacity needed to lead the church. We need scriptural tenacity. And for the church to mature, we need to be close to our Bible. That's what Paul and God is stressing here. Those who do not pursue godliness create harmful ideologies. If you don't pursue godliness, you'll come up with something else. You'll speculate. You'll guesstimate. You'll fill in that hole that God has already filled with his truth. And it ruins people's lives. And it ruins churches. Most of us probably can name a church that we know divided over some scriptural truth or maybe they divided over the color of the carpet. I don't know. But that's one of the silly things that happens. It's one of the silly things that happens. Because we get distracted, we get off the truth. Violence and disregard for human life. Oh my gosh, every, every morning someone's had a shooting somewhere. Someone's been killed. And we probably aren't equipped to handle all the bad news that's in the whole world, but now with the Internet, you can almost see everything in the morning when you pull up your news feed. But I think the disregard for human life comes from three things, evolution, abortion, and the sexual dysphoria that's going on. Why, why would we care for anybody's human life if they just came from a sludge pond somewhere a long time ago? They came from some dumb animal. Why would we care about their human life? It's just just an evolved thing. Why would we care about human life if we can terminate a fetus's life? If we can just conveniently get rid of it? Embryos aren't humans. That's what they want to tell us. Why would we care for any humanity if God got your gender wrong? That's what they're saying. I'm not this gender, I'm that gender because God got it wrong. They may not use those words specifically, but God never gets anything wrong, ever. The truth isn't prevailing out there. So our response as believers, we need to give Christ lordship over our life. We need to make him first in our life, each and every part. We need to deny ourselves and deny Jesus nothing. Let him have it all. I'm trusting, I'm, tell me, I, I can trust you. This will bless your life. It, it says in Romans 10, if you confess him as Lord, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, there can't be Lord of some things. You're either Lord of all or Lord not Lord at all. We need to submit to his lordship. We don't need to fight him. We don't need to argue with him. We don't need to negotiate with him. His truth is our foundation to fight off the heretics, the wolves that enter amongst us. Because Jesus said it clearly, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That scripture says it all. Following Christ will lead you down the right way to the truth, which is going to result in eternal life. Don't entertain any other truth. Don't give it a spot in your life. God's telling Timothy and the church that. He's telling us that. Let the spirit change your mind and your life will be better and the church will be stronger. Truth is the foundation of the church. The fifth point is let God lead the church. Man, that's a tough one for me. Sometimes I have to fight my own urges to lead things and take charge and push out. In verse 21 of chapter 5 he says I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice do nothing out of favoritism righteous leadership God charges Timothy and us to let him lead to be righteous not be partial not be influenced not be biased in any way When we carry out the disciplines of the church, the functions of the church, choosing leadership, it needs to be righteous and it needs to be just. That's what leadership's supposed to be. In verses one through 16 of chapter five, God guides us for dealing with church members, caring for widows, and family responsibilities. That's pretty clear on a lot of things right there. In verse eight, he kind of sums up, but anyone who does not provide for his own family, especially for his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's pretty clear. So he sets our priorities. And these things will impact the church and the church ministries. All these things he listed in here, I, tr- I tried to show in the sermon, that we, it can apply to all kind of ministry areas, not just to widows. And when we do that, we show a maturity. We show a maturity and a selfless love for the world. In verses 17 through 25, God teaches us how to manage the elders, the overseers, the leaders in the church, You look at verse 22. Don't be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder and don't share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. The bottom line lesson in that is be patient. Be patient. Be patient. Be patient. patient. (laughs) If you hate that word as much as I do, I'm going to keep saying it. Be patient, wait on God wait on God God guides on how to deal with the accusations he, here he guides us on how to honor the elders and, and waiting waiting out for true motives and true heart conditions to be revealed be patient be patient he talks about correcting others with gentleness speak to others as you would like to be spoken to right speak to others as you would like to be spoken to boy that's hard But we need to care for our family first, God's way. It's the godly priority, and it enhances our godliness. So we need to watch out for those who seek to misuse God's provisions. Correct them, see some repentance in them. God's roles for men and women are crucial for the church in light of ministerial management. And and he tells us how to manage the elders the way God would have us manage them. Honor the good ones, correct the bad ones, and ordain the right ones which requires patience. (laughs) Patience. For God to lead our church requires patience and for us to wait. Patience is one thing, but if you're sitting there tapping your foot, it's not real patient, is it? If you're drumming your fingers on the desk, it's not real. That's not a lot of patience. You're demonstrating you're not very patient. We need to wait expectantly on God and wait for him as long as it takes. See, God doesn't own a calendar or a wristwatch. He's never on a schedule. We put him on a schedule, or we try. <laughs> he wrecks my calendar every week. <laughs> the last point is that eternal life is the church's life. Chapter 6. But you, men of God, flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness... Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That reaffirms what God has said so many more of the times than the letter. Seek to multiply godly actions. That's what I've talked about when I mean live faithfully. Multiply godly actions to battle the enemy in our faith. Multiply them. Sometimes we do a good thing once and we think, okay, look, I did my good deed for the day. We're not the Boy Scouts, okay, or the Girl Scouts. We're Christians. And good deeds may be all you get to do for people. And you may have to do a bunch of them. And nobody may even know that you've done them. And that is okay because he knows. That's one of the points Paul makes here. He sees everything, he sees everything. And all of this is done with an eye on eternity, an eye on heaven. If sometimes we get our eyes on everything right here so much, but we need to remember that we're believer, as believers, we're fighting now for the future. We're fighting now for what's coming. We're laying up treasures in heaven. We're fighting the good fight of faith now because we know what we already have. In verses 1 through 10 of chapter 6, it speaks to how to live now, how to fight the heretics and materialism. And he says a really simple verse in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. You want to know how to get ahead in life? Be godly and content. Be godly and content. It is, that is maturity, by the way. That is maturity. Verses 13 through 21 gives a strong word about keeping the faith until the end of time since God Almighty and because God Almighty is watching. Verses 15 and 16. God will bring this about in his own time. He is the blessed and only sovereign, king of, and the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, To him be honor and eternal power, amen. That's who we're serving. He's in charge of everything, and he has everything in control. He has it under control. I know some of you are like, well, he doesn't have this under control. He does. He has it all under control. There is no panicking in heaven, and there's no plan B. God intended for this to happen, and he intended for us to follow him faithfully to the end. He tells rich believers that they must use their wealth righteously. Believers must guard the truth by proclaiming it. If you want to get rid of some of the lies that are out in the world, go tell someone you're going to get to live forever and you can tell them how. That's what we need to be proclaiming. See, eternal life is not about time. A lot of times we think about it in terms of longevity, a length of time. We measure it in our minds, which you can't measure eternity because it's infinity. And I took a lot of math classes and nobody has ever measured infinity. Infinity is infinity. It's out there. And eternity goes in both directions of time. And it's not a measurement of time. It's about quality of life. It's about quality of life, of service, of living beyond the here and now, living beyond yourself. That's what eternal life is about. Living life with eternal ethics, as I talked about when I preached this part, means Christ controls all aspects of your life. You let Him. Now, He's a gentleman. He's not going to wrench it out of your hands, but he's probably going to make things tough if you're not giving him complete control. I can name a lot of things that I don't have control over anymore because he he made it so hard on me, I finally gave him up. See, many reject Jesus because they've witnessed a person at their work or at their school or, or in the community that reflect and displays Christ poorly. And we're not supposed to do that. That's why he talks about the workplace in this chapter. And as we said at the very beginning, love is the major difference between us and everybody else. Christianity is a faith of love, not a faith of rules and regulations and all this other stuff. It is a a, a love born out of the gospel of grace. That's what Christianity is. It is the distinctive trait. And when love is out of the equation, when there's no love in the equation, the false teachers... And the wolves that are among us, they're out for the bottom line. They're looking for material gain. That's how you spot them. When they start talking about what they're going to get out of it, you know they're probably not loving. And then godliness comes up again in the chapter. Godliness, he mentions that word nine times in this book. It only appears 15 times in the whole New Testament. Paul covers nine of them right here in this letter. Godliness must be important. Godliness as your sole pursuit, coupled with contentment, gains you very much. So if you're discontent right now, ask yourself, why am I discontent right now? Probably, just guessing, probably you're pursuing ungodly goals of personal gain or just personal survival or whatever. You're not pursuing Christ. If the eternal life question is solved in your soul, if you know for a fact that you're going to heaven, that Jesus is forgiving you of all your sins, then you have no reason to be discontented. You have no reason to be stressed. Why? Because the gospel gives us our purpose and our master forever. No matter what happens, he is our purpose and our master forever. That's the kind of thing that eternal life is. So we need to run from the the world's false ideas and run to the master's plan. That's that's what we have to do. The gospel is our hope. Paul is stressing this over and over in this book because all the ideas out there are meant to distract from the gospel being our hope. If If we're not loving obedience to Christ, then are we really in Christ? If we don't like to do what Christ has asked us to do, we need to check our salvation a little bit. We may need to check our hearts a little bit. We may not be living it out. What is your hope really built on? Riches, wealth, comfort, security? I hope not. I hope your hope I hope, I hope your hope is based on the eternal life that is in Jesus Christ. I pray that If we trust in anything else, if we put our hope in anything else, it's sinking sand. It's a a building that's going to fall down when the storms of life come. True lasting hope is only found in Jesus. And that's Paul's final word at the end of the book, basically. That's his stand. Jesus Christ is Lord, so follow him. Jesus Christ is Lord, so follow him in your life and in the church. So let me kind of summarize this a little bit. Many times Paul tells Timothy to command, instruct, proclaim, teach. There's so many times he tells Paul, teach these things. Because why? They're not suggestions, they're commands. They're things we're supposed to be doing. As believers in Christ, we should want to find those things. And a mature church seeks to obey those things. God tells Timothy that by teaching these truths, the church will be saved. He says that many times. You will save your hearers. You will save your church. Souls will be protected. Lives will benefit if you keep teaching these. And then he calls Timothy, God calls Timothy and the church and us to fight the good fight of faith. Never get tired. Never give up. Struggle for it, for the conflict of faith in the world. There are so many things attacking it. Never give in to the temptations of the world. Never forget your faith. Never forget your faith. Never leave the church or disregard the Bible. Hang on to this. Stay close to this. This is your life instruction manual, if you want to know for sure. This is your eternal life instruction manual. It makes no sense sometimes for how we live this life, but it makes all the sense when we look at eternity. A growing church is one who loves Jesus and loves each other. I mean, that's what happens. That's what's supposed to happen. We love Jesus, we love each other, and we love the lost soul. So cultivate that in your own heart. Only by that way of living can we really reach maturity. When we love God, love others, each other, and love lost souls. And we do well to be concerned for the future of our church. As I started out with this, what does our church need? We need to be concerned about that. But let's do well by implementing God's word in our church. Paul told the Ephesians in chapter four, he said, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, becoming mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That is what we're called to do. Ephesians 4, 11 through 14. Build up the body, be unified in the faith, encourage the knowledge of the Son of God, and then we reach maturity because that's the way we're supposed to live, to be faithful. So we're going to take some time now in silent prayer. Pray for these things for your own heart as well as for our church. Let's take some time and pray for a few minutes and then I'll close us out.